find a seat, we're gonna get started. So welcome, welcome everyone. At Redemption Church, as you know, we follow the church calendar from like Advent through Pentecost each year. And we are now in the season of Eastertide. So Easter isn't just a Sunday, it's a season. Seven weeks long, plus you add on Easter Sunday, so it's 50 days. It's sometimes called the Great 50 Days. And it's a season in which we wrestle with the implications of cross and resurrection for our world. And one of the things we do in that, in that season from Advent to, to Pentecost is we follow something called the Revised Common Lectionary. It just assigns our text. And there are three years in a, in a cycle, year A, B, and C. And in all three years, they tell the same story the week after Easter Sunday. It's the story of Doubting Thomas. It's one of my favorite things about the lectionary. It's, it's as if there's this signal to us the week after Easter, if you don't doubt the claims of Easter, at least on some level, you're probably not taking them very seriously. Because cross and resurrection are such radical events, there's really no aspect of life that they leave untouched. And so to, to take them seriously is to let them deconstruct every aspect of life and human culture. Now that word deconstruction is a big word these days. Like if you're on Twitter, it's, the, it's a fighting word, right? That's what people argue about. And um, I think it's become a little bit like the, the word inconceivable in the movie, The Princess Bride, remember this? Where Vicini, sa he says, every time something weird happens, he says inconceivable, which is not right. And, and after a while, Inigo Montoya finally says, you remember what he says? You, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Like People use the word deconstruction a lot these days, and most of the time, I don't think it means what they think it means. A few years back, we actually studied this for several weeks, and I remember at the time thinking, man, we need to talk about deconstruction like once every year or two years. That was five years ago. So we are way overdue in revisiting this concept of deconstruction. And in order to do this, I have to turn you into um, a bit of a philosopher. So how many of you loved philosophy classes when you were in school? And, okay, this might be harder than I thought. That's not very <laughs> All right, how many of you doubt that I could ever make you into a philosopher? Hold your hand high. Okay. Well, the joke's on you because philosophers doubt everything, and so you're well on your way already. Um, I do think an encounter with just a little chunk of postmodern philosophy can help us um, and, and can turn us into a bit of a philosopher and maybe even a Christian at the end of this. I don't want to oversell it, but I think it's entirely possible. Um, but this idea of deconstruction, it came from this guy named Jacques Derrida, who was a very strange man and a great philosopher, born in Algeria in the 1930s to a middle-class Jewish family. He was educated um, in at Paris, at Harvard, taught at the Sorbonne and, and Yale in philosophy, became a really big deal. And Derrida said that the world that we inhabit is not, um, well, and not, I don't mean like the physical world, but like the world of ideas and meanings, institutions and language and beliefs and practice, culture, you could just say culture. He said the world of culture 
is what he called a conditional reality. I have props, okay, just like any good teacher of philosophy would have. So it is a conditional, that was a game show move, is, is a conditional, <laughs> it's a conditional reality. Like all of culture is conditional, which is to say it's always changing in response to the conditions, current conditions. So like take English as a language. We, we, we use English every day. We think in English. We, we work. We relate in English. But English didn't just like fall from the sky. You know, like it had to be constructed by people over time, which means, Derrida said, if it was constructed, it can be deconstructed, like taken apart, critiqued, challenged, and changed over time. In fact, it has been changed constantly. Ever, ever try to read a poem in Old English? Look at these lines. This is, this is something called Cademan's Hymn. It's a seventh century poem, one of the oldest writings in the English language. It's, it's indecipherable to us, right? At the time that this was written, it was written in English. But English has been deconstructed over time. It's been changed, adapted, and replaced. And, and what Derrida said is, all of culture is like this. All culture is conditional. It is constructed and can be deconstructed. And I use Legos. Lewis, my youngest, did a deep dive into the Lego bin in the basement to pull these out and built, built our thing here. Just, just to show us that our conditional realities, all of culture is a construct. It's constructed and can be deconstructed and um, changed over time. And this is happening constantly. All our beliefs and practices are institutions and traditions, things like art, science, medicine, government, everything from roads and bridges to concepts and ideas or from like the food we eat to the NDA or entertainment that we, we um, seek out. These are constructed conditional realities. And then what Derrida says is for every conditional reality, there is a corresponding unconditional. And unconditional is kind of different. Um, these are sometimes called universals. These would be words like um, justice, peace, freedom, forgiveness, equality. For Christians, we use words like faith, hope, and love. And they're unconditional because they seize us um, they, they call to us almost without condition. Like, we are not in control of these things. They seem to come almost from somewhere beyond us. And Derrida said that these words call to us. That's why I have fancy megaphone. Kristen ran all over town trying to find me a megaphone for this thing. Um, so they call. That's what the megaphone represents. They call to us, to every person, to every society, every community, in every time and place. There's this call that stirs within us a desire or a longing to see those things on that list embodied in our in the things we build the conditional realities and so we construct our cultures sort of in response to this call of the unconditional that just never stops calling to us his famous example, Derrida, he gave these lectures in 1989 at a law school in New York City. And he, he used the difference between law and justice. And he said, in every culture, there's this unconditional that we call justice, that just calls to us, to persons and societies. And it stirs within us a desire to see justice embodied in our 
laws. So the unconditional is justice. The conditional side is our laws. But, but even our best laws seem to fall short of justice as, as an ideal, right? So like they, they work in some cases, but sometimes the strict um, imposition of the law is not just at all. So we, we see the way the law treats maybe a person of color. And, and justice calls to us and says, that law is not working to produce justice. So you have to, re, you have to deconstruct that law and try to construct something better. But we can never deconstruct justice itself. It's just, it's out there in the future kind of calling to us and creating in us this longing to embody justice in our culture. And this is true of any, any universal, any kind of um, culture that we want to last. And so no matter how good our constructions are, they fall short always of the unconditional. No matter how much justice we embody in our laws, there's always some aspect of the law that isn't, it doesn't quite fit with justice. And, and how we know this is justice is always calling to us and calling into question what we've, we've built, stirring a desire in us to build something better. Now, so this means that the twist kind of in all of this is that it's like, it's like the unconditional um, never fully exists anywhere in the world that we could point to. It's, in, in fact, always out there in the future somewhere ahead of us, calling us forward into the world. But it's never fully here right now. So equality itself or justice or freedom or peace, it's never fully present in the things we've built. It's always just beyond us in the, in the future, um, calling us forward. Toward, does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay, good. So the unconditional is never fully present. It's always out there in the future. Not, by the way, not as like some pure essence or something that we, we, have, to, um, that we have to attain. That, that's actually not a Christian idea. That's, that would be Plato's forms or like um, Marx's utopia. It's not like that. The, the unconditional um, exists, in, like in our language, we would say as a hope, a future hope or a prayer a longing, a dream. So it's actually not something that can be deconstructed. Derrida's word for it was, it's the undeconstructible. The call of the unconditional cannot be deconstructed because it doesn't exist anywhere except for in the future, this future hope. And so it exists really just as this longing that we all feel for these kinds of words, this call it's always calling to us, an ache in the human heart to see justice, to see peace, to see faith, hope, and love embodied in, in the world we're making. And so in this example, like the, the law would be deconstructible. Justice is undeconstructible. In fact, if, if somebody were to ask you, what is justice? About the best you could do is say, I don't, I don't know what justice is, I can tell you in this case it looks like this, but th- then if you strip away the context and try to apply that to every case, it ends up breaking down at, at some point. So justice exists not as a thing, but as a longing, as a hope, a dream, a prayer. 
And it's always out there in the future calling us forward. In fact, I think this is the very best definition of deconstruction I have I've ever read or heard. It comes from a Christian philosopher and theologian named John Caputo. He says this, to deconstruct something is not to break it down or destroy it. It's to expose it to its future. If you want to snap a picture of something, snap it that. And especially in light of, I mean, this is very relevant information in light of current conversations in church. To deconstruct isn't to tear things down and destroy them. That's demolition not deconstruction. To deconstruct faith is to just constantly be willing to expose our faith to its future, including our beliefs and practices. That's, that's deconstruction. Everybody, are you tracking with me so far? Okay, you are now officially a philosopher. So now let's see if I can make you into a Christian. All right. Um, when Derrida started talking about the unconditional, theologians came in and said, this, this sounds a lot like faith. Like, it sounds like the Jewish Messiah. Remember, um, he was raised Jewish. It sounds like the word, the call of the unconditional, becoming flesh in our communities and the structures that we make. It, it reminds us of how like, the voice of the Spirit calls to every human person, kind of leading us toward this this future. We don't know where it comes from or where it's really going, but it haunts us and it pokes and prods us. It, it provokes us to um, respond, to embody what we hear, to embody things like faith, hope, and love. And so we build our churches, our religions, our communities, our institutions um, to try to embody this voice of the Spirit that we hear calling us. But they always fall short, right? And yet the call never stops calling. And so we compare what we have built to this, this call of the Spirit. Like the, the call, the unconditional, rem- reminds me a lot of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Spirit. And in light of what we hear calling to us, we, we deconstruct and then reconstruct the things that we have built in response to the call. And this process never ends. That's, that's deconstruction. Now, there are two responses, typically, to this process. There's a conserving response that wants to resist it and try to just preserve culture as it is. And then there's a liberating response that wants to embrace it and even help it along. And both of these responses kind of have, they have an upside and a downside. So the downside to the liberating response is that it can, be, it can be reckless. Like it deconstructs things that we still need and rely on and can lead to, to chaos. And what happens is you never really get around to building something that can last. And so all the energies of longing and hope that come from this call, they end up just being dissipated. So that's, that's really the downside is the energies from, from God, I think, become... Um, can lead to dissipation. However, Jesus' biggest concern in the scriptures um, did not seem to be the liberators. He characterized himself as a liberator. His biggest conflicts and concerns seemed to come with the conservers. Now, the upside of the conservers is, um, and that response is to say, you know, culture has to be rooted in something stable, and lasting. 
It, we, we need this. We need stable meanings in our lives and beliefs and even practices. If it changes too fast, uh, it doesn't seem stable. And if it doesn't seem stable, culture can disintegrate and just fracture and, and collapse like fairly quickly. We have tons of examples of this. So the conservative response is, is good. It says, Put, pump the brakes here and let's be careful about what we're tearing down. Um, and then it comes into conflict, right, with the liberating response. And you can see this play out in the deep divisions of our culture. Like right now, the conservers are saying, things are changing too quickly. And the liberators are saying, yeah, they're changing really quickly because like those on the margins are not flourishing. But then you, then you start to see the downside of the conserving response. They're in, in their reaction when change and deconstruction gets up ahead of steam um, is they, they tend toward authoritarianism, some kind of violence and coercion to resist the change, the deconstruction. And in re- religious discourse, um, the, the critiques of deconstruction almost always involve this idea that deconstruction leads to relativism. Anybody heard that? charge level. It's just anything goes, kind of relativism. But if you think about it, you know, down through history, our, our worst problems, I'm talking things like war, violence, famine, oppression, abuse, injustice, those things are really a result of, of relativism. I mean, nobody ever accused Hitler or Stalin of being a relativist. They had convictions, you know, or the church that burned heretics was not relativistic. It's not usually relativism that causes our worst problems. It's authoritarianism that seeks to control things through violence and coercion. And in Christianity, we have a name for this. It's actually um, the word idolatry. If you think about what idolatry is, it just means taking something alive and mysterious and dynamic and free and then carving it into a little statue you know, that you can own and control, that you can capture and just freeze in in time and space so it won't have to change. And and I'm going to say this because I'm convinced it's true. It it is the clinging to religious certitudes and the kind of rigidifying of religious constructs that is the real idolatry. I mean, you can see in, like, um, Protestant fundamentalism, often makes the Bible into an idol. Um, Roman Catholicism often makes the institution of the church into an idol. You ever wonder why those two groups groups are suddenly um, allies after centuries of of being at odds with each other in in the U.S.? Well, it's because the culture is changing, and they're having this conserving response. The call of the unconditional feels like a threat right now to all that those guys have built and so they're embracing together authoritarianism both here in the U.S. and and all around the world it's very concerning when you get alone with pastors this is what we talk about we're very concerned about all the church trending toward authoritarianism and cross and resurrection 
call all of that into question. Really, the season of Eastertide asks us um, to, to gather our courage and to embrace cross and resurrection as sort of the ultimate call of the unconditional. Cross and resurrection ultimately deconstruct every aspect of human culture, call into question every aspect of life. And if Jesus is truly God in human flesh and God has now been made known in cross, like in suffering, in weakness, even death, and death has been overcome through resurrection and, and new life, then, then we need to deconstruct much of our lives. I mean, our actions, our instincts, our habits, personally, and our modes of discourse, of ways of relating to one another socially, all our structures of things like politics and economics and justice and education, e- even religion. All of the stuff we've made, the conditional realities, have to be just continually de- and reconstructed in light of this, the lordship of Christ that comes to us as this call to a future that's been revealed in cross and resurrection. I mean, Jesus' call was, take up your cross and follow me. So to be a Christian, in large part, is to expose our lives to the future of God that is revealed in cross and resurrection. And to then live in this kind of radical openness to God and to the call of God, the Spirit, the call of the unconditional, um, and, and to sort of resist that conserving impulse when it pulls us toward idolatry, and also resist that liberating um, impulse when it starts to pull us toward dissipation and, and chaos. And then to instead just embrace the renewing work of God in our own lives and in the world. Even if it means deconstructing some things that we're attached to. Especially if they give us power and and privilege. What happens in the story of Thomas and his doubt is that in the resurrected Christ, who just shows up in the room, doesn't even go through the door, they're exposed to the future of humanity. And it deconstructs every aspect of their life. The the risen Christ's presence invites them to deconstruct their reality. They're just like exposed to the future of all humanity, the future of God, and it calls them to try and kind of step into or build together a a new humanity, a new community, a new creation. These These are deep theological words. And it begins like this. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So this is the same day as resurrection. They're hiding in fear. All they know at this point is Jesus was died and was buried. His body disappeared. Mary Magdalene said she saw him, but they don't believe her. They're all doubting Thomas at this point. And when suddenly he appears and says, Peace be with you, which is what he's always saying, Shalom. Everything in its place, doing and doing what's supposed to do and relating rightly. And then after he said this, he showed him his hands inside, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw 
um, the Lord. So don't miss this. He, he shows them, what he shows them are the wounds of his body, the, the wounds for them, wounds of love. And we, when they see him, they rejoice. And then he says again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now this is, it's familiar, so it flies probably past us. It's a radical passage here. He declares peace again, shalom, speaks it over him like a blessing. And it's, it's like, now that you've seen the wounds of love, be at peace. And then he commissions them. This is John's great commission. And he says, God sent me into, into the world on a mission of peace. So I send you on this same mission. Breathe on them the spirit. So we're thinking the call, the, the unconditional. They're receiving this call. And then he says something very strange. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He says, you decide. Now, in the Gospel of John, you have to remember, sin is not like a moral transgression. Sin in the Gospel of John means disbelief. Like, uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual blindness. Like, think of when Jesus um, healed the man born blind and the Pharisees' reaction to that. He, he, and Jesus, like, flips it on him. He says, you guys are the blind ones, not, not this guy. And it's a willful blindness. You've chosen this. So he's saying the call of the divine is telling Jesus in that moment that their constructions, their, their law, the Jewish law at that time, um, may... Um, position them as righteous, but their willful blindness in their approach to this blind man is nothing short of sin, spiritual blindness. They've refused to hear the call of the divine because they're in love with their structures, their conditional realities, and it has become for them, in a sense, idolatry. And this is really the difference between, I think you could call it, the difference between doubt and disbelief. So doubt is deconstruction. It seeks an encounter with the undeconstructible here in this world. Disbelief refuses to change even after the encounter with the divine. The Pharisees are blind with disbelief. And John calls it sin. And Jesus, you know, and John, he's the light of the world who, who brings access to the light, revealing for all humanity, really, in resurrection. What resurrection means is we don't have to be afraid of God anymore. God's grace and presence is open to everyone now. So Jesus just redefines the terms of humanity's relationship to God and commissions them, live in peace, shalom. And by living in peace, he says, you will bear witness to Christ's lordship. You will, you will embody in the world the future of God. So to, so to be exposed to a Christian then, for anybody, is to be exposed to the future of the world. This is deconstruction. And so their, their mode of witness is a kind of deconstruction, Right? Jesus' final act, remember, with his disciples and, and John is washing their feet and telling them, everybody, look, everybody's going to know you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. This is how it's going to go down. This is how they'll be exposed to their future. 
This, this radical self-giving love holds incredible deconstructive power. The, the kingdom of God is not about holding right beliefs or any conditional reality. Those are subject to, to change under the direction of the Spirit. It's not about keeping kosher, keeping ritually clean. Those are conditional realities. They can be good. They can be great. But um, they're always subject to the call. He says, from now on, like, you get to decide. And anybody you invite into this little loving community will no longer be blinded by sin. They'll be awake to the world. They'll, they'll experience this peace. And he says, I'm, I'm putting you in charge. It's no longer about keeping the law. It's going to be about actually bearing the wounds of love on your bodies. And the only ones stuck in sin are those who hear this call and just ignore it and cling to their structures. They plug their ears. They protect their power. They remain willfully blind. John calls this sin. But anyone who heeds the call of love and bears the wounds of love will find shalom, will find peace. But then there's Thomas, who has missed this, right? He's just he was doing errands or taking a nap or something. He missed it. And he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put, his, put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And before we jump on Thomas, we should just remind ourselves, he has not yet seen the wounds of love, right? Um, before, when Mary Magdalene said she saw Jesus, none of the disciples believed her either. And then they, he appeared and they saw the wounds of love. Now Thomas doesn't believe and he's specific about what he needs to see. He says, I want to see the mark of the nails and, and the wound in his side. He has to see the wounds of love. So he's not actually in a state of willful disbelief. He's in a state of doubt. And it's not the same thing. And it's not a problem. In fact, as, as, as long as Thomas is doubting, he's still walking in faith. He's still keeping faith with his brothers and sisters. He doesn't bail on them. He's faithing it forward, even though he, he, has his, he has his doubts. A week later, it says, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And all the, the doors were shut. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's the third time with this command. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So he doesn't shame him. He doesn't censure him. He offers him exactly what he needs for faith. He lets him see the wounds of love. And then Thomas undergoes, I mean, one of the, the quickest deconstructions in all of Scripture. He falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God, which is blasphemy two seconds earlier. You can't say that about a human being. Two seconds earlier, and he's just like, I see the wounds. He's on his knees. I mean, this is deconstruction. And part of what I think Thomas um, teaches us is, is that doubt, you guys, doubt is not a problem. Doubt is not the sin that John is pointing to. Doubt is deconstruction. Doubt is a necessary part of walking in faith. It's just saying, I have my doubts about this stuff we're doing because I hear this call, the call of the Spirit, and I'm, I'm part of a people who are listening and trying to, to follow it. 
Sin is willful disbelief. That's different. That's, that's refusing to deconstruct our conditional realities even though we hear the call, right? Even though we have some longing there. And, and all, all of it, is especially when, when whatever we've built is leaving people out of shalom, when they don't have access to peace. Because peace is the goal. Peace is revealed after the resurrection. Peace is revealed to be a life that bears the wounds of love. And this kind of life exposes, in a sense, the world to their own future. It's where everything is going in the end toward love, toward people who know how to lay down their lives for one another. And, you know, deconstruction is in the air. And we do live in this time when, when like, it, people are finding it really hard to believe in God. I mean, let's tell the truth. That is... That's the world we live in. And in some sense, you know, philosophers and scientists and also theologians have done their job because people, people, what they're stopping believing in is kind of the Santa Claus God, you know? The God who, like, sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake and knows if you've been bad or good, right? And only brings gifts to, like, the good little boys and girls. This, this God is being debunked, and it needs to be. It's not real, the problem is so many of our religious structures were built on that understanding of God. And if, if those religious structures give you power, man, it's tough. It's tough to let yourself deconstruct. And, and so the reaction, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a bad time to have to introduce yourself to new people if you're a pastor. Because you get the stink eye, like every time. You know what I mean? And, and the reason is that in light of that situation, church structures and, and clergy are tending toward an authoritarian response. And it's just, I, I just see it as a, a way to protect power and privilege. I think it's idolatry, man. It's confusing the conditional for the unconditional. I mean, Jesus said... The, the spirit is like a wind. It blows where it blows, and you follow. And fighting over questions of doctrine and morality, killing people who have doubts or ask questions, refusing, in a sense, to bear the wounds of love for the least of these, for the, the left out, the lonely. I mean, the wounds are the only way to bear witness to the kingdom of God. And the call of the divine. So everything that we have made in our churches, religions, doctrine, all of it um, is deconstructible, refutable, changeable in response to the Spirit. And what cross and resurrection teaches us is that what is irrefutable, what is in a sense undeconstructible, are the wounds of love. They call everything into question. Wounds of love, I just mean when we, when we lay down our lives for the life of the other, whoever that might be. This, this comes from the future, man. This is what the world will be like someday. 
and cannot be deconstructed because it's just, it shows up in flashes and it's a miracle when it happens and in its wake comes peace and new life. And so to encounter the wounds of love, um, in a sense, exposes us and whoever we're with to the future of God. It's, it's deconstructing. It is, strictly speaking, how we bear witness. Now remember the word witness is marturo, same word we get martyr from. It's to bear the wounds of love, that's witness. Learning to bear these wounds of love then, learning to take up our cross and follow Jesus, this is the path to shalom, to peace. And much of how this will happen is to rope up with another community of faith who says, I see the ditch on the conserving side. I see the ditch on the, on the liberating side. Let's stay out of the ditches. But here in the middle, let's listen to the call of the divine. Let's let this call, this unconditional, we're not in control of it. It comes to us from the future. Let it speak to us in the midst of life, mostly as we live in solidarity with the marginalized and the outcasts. And as we begin to love and judge and learn how to pour out our life for each other, peace starts to happen, just happens. We don't know even where it comes from, but when it happens, oh man, it's like you become alive with an undeconstructible life. And that's, that would be a pretty good synonym for eternal life. You become alive with a life that's just so alive it calls every other way of life into question. And I know that sounds like pie in the sky, but it happens. I see it happen all the time around here. This is what we're chasing. Not a perfect structure. A sensitivity to the call and a willingness to just follow the Spirit where it leads us. Together, being careful, but following after Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the story of Thomas Thank you that the church was brave to include this just every year right after Easter as we try to um, imagine a world where resurrection, where new life after every little death we die to ourselves and to each other, where this is actually possible. We pray, God, for um, our own community for our relationships with family and friends and neighbors and coworkers. We pray for the church in our city, in, in the West, in the world. We pray, God, that you would make us brave to offer all of it up to you, all our structures up to you. And that you would lead us into the future. Teach us how to bear witness to Christ, our Savior, the world's true Lord. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we do it is just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do... Um, the servers will say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. Um, the reason that we do this is, um, his last night with his 
disciples, Jesus took a loaf of bread and a cup, and he, he made them all share the same cup, the same loaf of bread. And then he said this. He said, the bread is like my body, and the cup is like my blood or my life. And he said, every time you gather, I want you to eat the bread and the cup, and it's, it's like you're taking my life into your life. And you're going to become made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then sent out in, into the world is like this glimpse of the future of God, right? And he said, every time you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember my death until I come again. And so this is why we receive communion each week. And it's also why we in, invite just anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. So if you would pray with me, and let's pray a blessing on this meal. God, we do ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?